It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast. This one featuring Susan Evans from UKIP. And as always with UKIP, there's a different dynamic in the room. Now, every guest brings their own atmosphere. Um, Suzanne and UKIP always create a, a different sort of vibe. There's always an air of anarchy in the air, which I, I kind of rather enjoy. Uh, and there is a listen out for an interesting bit where we talk about Suzanne's attempt to become UKIP's candidate for London Man. Now, she was unsuccessful, um, but the person who beat her is in the audience. And this is... They'd, they'd come along together, so it's, I think it's fine. But just listen out for some of those exchanges because it's, it's really interesting um, hearing Suzanne talk about it. Uh, she's very talented and, and very bright and very likeable. Um, as always with you, Kip, um, you're never quite sure how serious it all is. Um, but it was a pleasure, and I hope you enjoy. Uh, this is the, uh, as you know, the uh, first uh, show back of the autumn and uh, winter session and uh, we've got um, a variety of guests um, over the next few months and uh, I always, I'm very keen to get guests from across the political spectrum. We've had two UKIP guests before, Nigel Farage uh, and Paul Mussel and tonight represents our third. Uh, for those of you who haven't been here before and even those of you that have, um, there's always been the spirit of this gig to listen to people respectfully, of course to, to laugh and to question things like that. I will open the floor up towards the end of the gig of questions from the audience. If you've got anything you'd like to ask Suzanne then have it on your mind and we'll, we'll get around as many of you as you can. But, it, you know, the whole point of this is that it's a friendly place uh, and very much the new politics uh, that, is, uh, <laughs> that is now dominating Britain um, where all opinions are allowed. Uh, so in the spirit of Corbyn mania, uh, please welcome UKIP's Suzanne Evans. <laughs> You've got to see Suzanne, interesting political times. Um, yeah, political times are always interesting. They are indeed. Some times are more interesting than others. Does this feel particularly more interesting to you? I think it does, actually, yeah. You see, what you have to know is I'm quite new to politics. So I was not one of these uh, people that was brought up to politics, never expected to be involved in politics. And I can't tell you how surprised I am to be here and how surprised I am to find myself on programmes like Question Time. I sit there and I think, what the hell am I doing here? How on earth did I get here? Because it was never in my, you know, it's never in my DNA. It was never in my career plan. It sort of completely happened by accident. Well, you're very natural at it. I mean, you were on Question Time last week or uh, the week before, and we were very relaxed and very competent. And, and, and it was a, it's a complete calm underneath. It's like swan floating. The legs are pedalling like crazy underneath. I can assure you, it is terrifying being on that. Program. Do you find it terrifying? Yeah, absolutely. The first time I went on it, I, I sat next to David Dimbleby, and I thought, oh, this is great. I'll be able to sort of have some idea of what questions are coming up because you have absolutely no. No idea. I thought if I'm sitting next to him, I can see his notes and I can look like this. But no way, he hides it up. It's like he's sitting next to you in an exam. And he's just doing it. When I was on it, he'd drawn a cock and balls on it. But he really. <laughs> <laughs> he's lost it. Um, <laughs> but you, you never give the impression of being stressed or, or scared. Is that a skill you've learned? I don't know. I don't. I, um, it must be. 
Must be. So what's yeah. it? That, I mean, I can understand. I'm not a politician, and, and even though you're sort of not the archetypal politician, nevertheless, this is where you find yourself. Mm. Is it a fear that you will offend? Is it a fear that you will say the wrong thing? Is it a fear of maybe not? Understanding the question, I mean, what are the things that go through your head? I think it's a fear of uh, saying the wrong thing, uh, saying something stupid, uh, saying something you don't mean, uh, the stuff that politics is made of, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, how do you feel about Corbyn? Because everyone, everyone's got their own reaction to him. Um, I mean, he's, you know, he's slightly mad, he's anti-EU. I mean, he could be one of your lot. Well, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> like food cake. <laughs> um, Corbyn's a really interesting character, isn't he? I think, like Nigel Farage, he's, he's, he's one of these people that somebody said it earlier in the audience, you know, he's authentic. He comes across as doing what he says on the tin, he comes across as being somebody that says it like, like it is, but uh, his politics are completely nuts. I mean, he is an unreconstructed communist. Um, uh, and for me, that's completely a com- communism. For me, is completely at odds with what it's supposed to do, which is help the poor and the underprivileged in society. Because you look at every single communist uh, regime there's ever been, and who is it ends up that gets screwing most? It's the poor and the underprivileged and the dispossessed. So I, I find that kind of hard left politics really difficult to deal with, as much as I find the hard right completely difficult to deal with. And I think in terms of politics, I'm very much considered myself to be on the centre right-ish. <laughs> Ish being the crucial part, I mean, <laughs> maybe that axis. But is there a danger to UKIP from Corbyn? Not necessarily in an ideological sense, but that UKIP and Farage's um, brand has been, as you say, it's quite similar to Corbyn's in the sense that it feels authentic. And there's a novelty factor about Farage that other parties didn't have. But if you look at the year we've had with the SNP, with mm. the referendum, with, uh, with with Corbyn now leading the Labour Party, it almost feels like. UKIP's novelty factor has waned a bit. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Is there a sense of that in the party? Well, I think given that we were called clowns and fruitcakes, I think that our novelty factor wanes is probably no bad thing, really. I think certainly we're seeing ourselves now as being a more... People are taking us more seriously. Um, I'm proud that I wrote the manifesto, which I think was very sensible, had a lot of good policies in that other parties then took up and that they couldn't really fault. It was Catch-22 when I was writing the manifesto. I thought, right, the 2010 manifesto was pretty awful, really, let's be honest. It had stupid ideas like, uh, you know, let's make the circle line a circle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Straight-talking politics, something like this. (laughs) You know, it had ideas like, if you've got to go to the opera, you've got to wear black tie, all this kind of stuff. So clearly I wanted to... didn't have much to. Uh, I, I, it wasn't going to be much worse, whatever I did. But I, but I knew that writing the manifesto, I wanted to do something that was professional, that ex- expanded the reach of the party, that actually had really good policies there. And I knew that if I didn't uh, fulfil that brief, the press would rip it apart. Uh, what actually happened, of course, was they completely ignored it because it was so good. So it was. It, it really. <laughs> So I think, yes, if we're, if we're no longer seen as a novelty factor, and of course with 3.8 million votes, mm. that's it, we've, we've made it. You know, the real shame, the real tragedy is that for all those wonderful votes we got, we only got one MP, and that's now made me absolutely passionate about political reform as well, <laughs> about, about having a parliament that represents the people. You know, the Tories are making a lot about the fact they've got a majority, and that, they say, gives them a mandate to therefore roll out all the policies that were in their manifesto. But I say, hang on a minute... Actually, you, you might have got a majority, but only by the skin of your teeth, and certainly that majority is not representative of the votes, and your, the, the parliament we have isn't representative of the votes that were cast in the countryside. I think there's a, a genuine sense of 
fair play, uh, I think, at the very least. And I think UKIP actually are the one party that really represent that, that 3.8 million votes on one seat mm. doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel like Parliament is representing what is clearly a, a huge chunk of opinion. And if you think about, I think the Tories won with about 11 million votes. Yeah. You've got effectively a third of what they got, mm. but didn't get a third of the parliament, parliamentary representation. And over twice as many as the SNP, who got 56. How do you feel about the SNP then? Do you sort of look at them as something to be emulated? <laughs> no, don't be daft. <laughs> no, but, but there are parallels, aren't there? You know, in terms of the way that they run their referendum campaign and then built on that in a parliamentary sense in the way that they've gone from being effectively a single issue party to have an, a broader perspective. So are there, are there lessons you think you can learn from them? I think there are. Uh, I think um, they, they, they are a single issue party and arguably UKIP, although we have lots of other policies as well and they're a very broad range of policies now, our heart you know, it's about getting out of the European Union. It's about getting our freedom back, our independence back. It's about when I put a cross in the box to send an MP to Parliament, I know that they're going to be able to represent me to make laws. And if I don't like them, I can boot them out again. Uh, and, and for me, that's, that's fundamentally the problem I have with the European Union, is it's a, a plutocratic elite that makes all the rules behind closed doors. We didn't elect them. We can't get rid of them. They're unaccountable. And I just think that's completely wrong. I think that, well, I think there's, I think there's wide support for that view on left and right now, isn't there? So yes. in terms of looking forward to this EU referendum, which I, I find, I hope will be less divisive than the Scottish one, um, and will be more, more open and maybe less emotional. I mean, maybe our relationship with Europe is different to Scotland's relationship with the UK, and as a result, will be hopefully less uh, less aggressive uh, on on the streets. Um, oh, I hope so. I mean, I think that's one of the heartbreaking things and why I suppose I had such a negative reaction to the SNP is because I've got friends in Scotland who really, they, they were physically and verbally intimidated and it wasn't nice. Well, and Nigel was, wasn't he, when he went to yeah. uh, Edinburgh? Uh, they locked him in a pub, which seemed slightly counterintuitive. <laughs> you, you almost wonder if he planned it, really. Yeah. <laughs> But do you worry about that? Do you worry about... I mean, do, do you face much abuse on the street for being new kid? No, I don't, actually. Uh, it's funny enough, because I used to be a Tory councillor, and the most abuse I've ever faced is when I was a Tory councillor. Um, and, and actually, I've had less abuses. I'm not saying I haven't had any abuse. I've had people come up and say things. But, but no, actually, on the whole, it's, it's... Touch wood. Is there any here? Please give me some. Um, it's been fine. So what do, what do people say, then? What sort of abuse do they give you? I remember I was, uh, we had a by-election that I was helping out at, and it was when Godfrey Bloom, who's no longer <laughs> in our party, <laughs> uh, had, had said something silly, and somebody came up to me and said, oh, are you UKIP? And I said, yes, and you know, give him my best smile, and he said, uh, effing racist. Yeah. Oh, because because Godfrey had used this term bongo bongo land, oh, which of course doesn't exist. There is no such place. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that wasn't. But that, that's that's about as bad as it's got, really. So because uh, Godfrey said a number of things that were offensive. Oh bless him. And, he did. He did give. He did give us some good laughs, didn't he? Really. Well, and, he did. Yeah, probably yeah. the wrong reasons, but hey ho. Yeah, I mean, you know, when he called women sluts and things like that. Yeah. As a woman, were you offended by that? Well, I think what, you see, Godfrey, unfortunately, I think what he meant was slovenly slag yeah. in that sort of sense, yeah. rather than the slut sense of yeah, a, yeah. a loose woman. Yeah. Um, and I think he, he, mixed his, he mixed his insults a bit. And his drinks, <laughs> no <doubt. laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I, I, I was more offended by the way he behaved with the, with the press when he whacked Ma- Michael Crick over the head with, a, <laughs> with the UKIP programme, which I, I thought was a The programme you'd written. Uh, no, not that one. That was a different one. Um, and, and I think for that reason he had to go. You can't go round whacking people on the head, even with a bit of a piece of paper, really. But do you feel, do you sometimes feel, because you strike me as a very professional person and someone who's, who's clearly intelligent and someone who's very driven um, by your ideology uh, and is very good at uh, explaining your, your sort of beliefs, do you sometimes get frustrated with the circus that goes with UKIP? Um, I get frustrated with the way it's reported, which I think is unfair. Uh, we constantly get, I, I, and I've done this umpteen times in media interviews, I find myself having to go on to defend somebody that said something daft. Mm. And uh, it, sometimes it's indefensible, sometimes it's just been hyped out of all proportion, and it depends on the incident. But there are, you only have to, you go around any, anywhere in the country, pick up a local newspaper, there'll be a Green councillor, a Lib Dem, a Tory, a Labour councillor, who's done something absolutely horrific. And no, I mean, nominated really Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership. Well, what, <laughs> and it's not reported on the on the on the news at all. Whereas we have some nutter who who's a lowly parish councillor who says, you know, oh, all these floods, it's because of people are gay. I mean, how stupid. Um, but it makes national headline news. And the next thing you know, there's daily politics. And they've got cabinet ministers coming on to, to attack this guy. You think, he's a parish councillor. And he was saying this when he was a Tory. And now suddenly you feel you've got to wheel out half the cabinet to attack him. And it's just a bit overkill. And unfortunately, it's like any walk of life. There are good people and bad people. There are silly people and intelligent people. Uh, you it's no different. We, of course, we're going to have our fair share of uh, people who say the wrong thing, but my goodness, the other parties are just as bad. But unfortunately, they don't get the scrutiny, and that annoys me. Yeah, I, I, to be fair, I, I have some sympathy with that. I think maybe UKIP has a few more, but there are... De- I mean, there, Well, I'm not so but, sure I agree, are, really. But there are but definitely... But what I would definitely say is there are definitely weirdos and whatever term you would use, politically incorrect people in every party, and it does feel like UKIP are the only people... Well, in every walk of life. Well, it's not just politics. And, you know, well, it makes me... On that basis, you could be the real people's party. It does make me laugh. Well, it does, it does Everyone's make me a laugh. nutter. It does make me laugh how people say, you know, we want people who are real. We want our politicians to be human. We want them to be ordinary. And then people do tend to complain when they, when they find out that they are and they're a bit fallible. Do you, um, do you feel that pressure as a politician to be or behave in a particular way? Yes. I, I think I'd be mad not to. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not a complete masochist. <laughs> but do you, do you sometimes feel, you know, you wish you could really speak your mind? and You know, that's understandable in politics. Or that, or that you wish you could behave in a different way? No, I don't have a problem with speaking my mind, actually, because I don't think my mind is too bad, so it's quite OK to speak it. <laughs> uh, so I, I never, I've never felt that I've been gagged in any way because I'm a politician or that I have to watch what I say because I, I honestly don't think there's anything I could say that would be absolutely dreadful that I would want to shut up about. Does that make sense? Um, yes, it does. I, just... I don't think there's anything awful going on up in here that shouldn't come out here, really. No, indeed. Um, I can say, I might say some things that are misconstrued or misunderstood because I haven't expressed myself very well. But, but no, I don't feel that I'm gagged as a politician. And I think that's one of the refreshing things about UKIP is that we have permission to say things that, uh, that, that some other people would rather not say because they're frightened about their career, uh, because they, they feel that the politically correct uh, extremists, and there are certainly those as well, might jump on our back or, or we might get in the press and so on and so forth. And actually, I think there's a real role in politics for people who are prepared to stand up and put their head above the parapet and say the, the things that other people are too frightened to say, but that, are, that need saying. 
I agree with that. Isn't there a danger sometimes, though, that you say things that no one else would say because they are offensive and they're wrong? I don't believe so. No, no. Uh, where, where, we, where in the party we've had people that have said things that are offensive and wrong, we've acted very quickly to get rid of them. Whereas you look at other parties, like how long did it take David Cameron to sack Maria Miller when she fiddled her expenses? You know, we look at the shadow cabinet now. Uh, we've got wife beaters, we've got terrorist supporters, we've even got vegans, for God's sake. <laughs> well, I mean... It... <laughs> Not the views of this podcast. I think you get the point. <laughs> I've got nothing against vegans. No, I mean, I, I, I understand. I mean, I, there are certainly people in the Shadow Cabinet that have said some things that are pretty inexcusable mm. in the past, and I, I, Absolutely. I, let's hope they have a light shone on them in the same way that UKIP people have had a light shone on them. I guess what I, what I worry about UKIP is, much as I respect the parties, I do all major parties and anyone who stands for them, I think UKIP have fulfilled a vital function in trying to change the culture of politics and the way it's conducted. I think there's a danger sometimes, isn't there, that when even though you might see yourself, and I would see you as a sensible um, Eurosceptic, as somebody sees it as a, almost a technocratic argument and one about sovereignty and the Constitution, mm. there are others that are inspired by your party that take it too far and sees it a way to be disrespectful about immigrant communities and about mm. the effects of immigration on the country. Isn't there a danger with UKIP that you're... You, sometimes you're necessarily having to play with fire a little bit. No, immigration is a serious issue. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you cannot have a situation in a small country like ours where you've got 560,000 people arriving every year and not have consequences for school places, for hospital waiting lists, for trying to get to the doctor or to the dentist, trying to find a house, spiralling house prices, uh, crime, overcrowding, the whole thing. I mean, it, it is an issue that we have to talk about, and the other parties have refused to do that for their own ideological reasons. Uh, and uh, what, what I find particularly interesting is it's very often immigrant communities now who are the most concerned about it because they are first, second generation immigrants who have come here, who have worked very hard, who've made their own way, have integrated into British society, and they see things changing. And they have Im immigrated to Britain because they love British values, they love British culture, they love what Britain's got to offer, they respect the NHS, they respect the welfare state, and they're seeing it being abused by others coming in. Not, not all, obviously. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that most immigrants come to work, they come to, 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 to integrate and so on and so forth. But we're a small island and we cannot carry on like this without it cracking. And I was quite shocked going back to when I was on Question Time the other day. One of the, the first questions that was asked was, should we take more migrants than we can cope with? And it was quite worrying how many people said, yeah, sure, yeah, let's carry on, you know, than we can cope with. Uh, it's, 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 it's crazy. Um, just, I, I, I just I, don't get that. I guess the I mean... I understand the problems that immigration causes, but if you have a situation where immigrants are net contributors to the economy, isn't then just the issue for government to reallocate resources to where there are more well, communities? Well, it depends what you mean by net contributors, because there are so many contradictory studies, and it's very hard to actually get to what, what is actually true about this situation. There are studies that show they're not net contributors, there are studies that show that they are, but I'd also say it's not just about money. It is about culture, 
it is about uh, our way of life, it's about the housing crisis, it's about um, how we want our society to be going forward. It's not just about the money. But culture, I mean, it, one of the great things about Britain is that it is multicultural, isn't it? That's, that's yeah. part of what yeah. makes it wonderful. Ab absolutely, it is. What is it, chicken tikka masala now? You know, a favourite dish. God, I love it. Uh, there's a difference between multi... More of a madras man. Uh, no, it's too hot for me. It's too hot for me. Um, there's a difference. People talk about multiculturalism, and uh, I'm opposed to multiculturalism, but I'm in favour of a multicultural society. And the difference is multiculturalism is a philosophy that says you can come to Britain, uh, you can uh, keep your own culture, keep your own way of life, uh, adhere to your own laws, be that Sharia law, whatever else it might be, and you don't have to integrate into British society, and that, I think, is wrong. Yes, I, I think most people would agree that that was wrong. But in terms of having a multi, a multi, well, in terms of having a multicultural society, though, um, are UKIP sort of officially okay with that? Mm, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about British people, people think, "Oh, UKIP, you talk about British people." Well, I'm sorry, it's you that's thinking about white people, not us. We see British people as being people from the Asian community, the Black community, the white community. Uh, British and British people are now people of all class, culture, religion. Um, faith background, whatever it might be, and that's that's absolutely. And you only have to look at the number. Of, but we had more ethnic minority candidates than the Green Party at the election. Um, well, that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> we probably had more candidates than the Green Party. Full stop. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just my, my fear is that as we as you saw with the SNPs in Scotland, you know, mm -hmm. it's a green light to other people to take a debate too far. And I, I worry sometimes with. I saw Nigel on telly the other day, uh, mm. you know, he said, we want our country back. And I just thought, yeah. you know, a phrase like that sounds a little bit BNP. It sounds like it's mm. on the wrong side of this argument. It, it makes, it made me, I sort of physically felt cold when he said it. Well, I, what I Nigel know. means with that is we want our democracy back. We want our country back. We want to make, be able to make our own laws again. We want to be able to take control of our seas again, of our farming industry, of our business communities, of our tax system. Uh, and this is what the European Union has stripped away from us. So that's what he means. Um, you should do more publicity with him, I think, because that, that, that was a very good answer. But um, <laughs> Thank you. He actually meant something completely different. Uh, <laughs> What's your relationship with, with, with uh, Nigel? Oh, he's great, isn't he? <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, you know, Nigel, I joined UKIP. I'll tell you how what happened when I joined UKIP, because I was, as I said, I was a Conservative councillor, and I just got fed up with Cameron, because I'd actually helped to launch a 2010 Conservative Party manifesto. He had a, we had a big event at Battersea um, Power State. That was the one, and yeah. I took it up. The little yeah. blue book. Yeah. And so I was one of the people there launching this little blue book. And I just felt he'd ripped it up and tossed it away, really. And I didn't feel, I know he was in coalition, but I, I think he was using coalition as an excuse not to drive forward his policies. And one thing in particular annoyed me, and that was that in the 2010 manifesto, it, it, it talked about taking back power from Brussels. And the reality was that in the coalition agreement, they signed up to the expansion of the European Union. So that, for me, was a massive change. And uh, so uh, I, 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 I talked about joining UKIP. In fact, my friend Richard is here tonight, actually. Uh, was the Big one fan of himself, one, <laughs> <laughs> one, of my, one of my colleagues. He, he said, look, we, we should look at UKIP. And I'll, I'll cut the long, long story short. But Nigel actually phoned us up. And he said, uh, we, we left the, we'd left the Conservative Party by this time and we, we were thinking about joining UKIP. And he phoned us up and he said, look, I admire your spine. I think what you're doing is great. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love you to come and join me. And to cut a long story short, we did. And, and since then, uh, how's your relationship? I mean, I'm thinking sort of specifically this week because 
I think everyone expected you to be the candidate, the UK candidate for London Mayor. I didn't. Well, maybe you had inside information. I don't know about that. But no, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion. I think a lot of people thought it was a foregone conclusion. But actually, also with me tonight is Peter Whittle, who is our mayoral candidate. So I brought him along as my guest tonight, too. Hello, Peter. Hello there. Oh, nice to meet See, this is interesting because you were rivals in the... Race, no, we weren't rival. Were we, Peter? Were we rivals? No, we no, weren't standing no. with each other, were you? You were standing against each other to be the candidate for London Mayor. But, uh, yeah. what I wouldn't I say it was rivals, though. It's a sort of, you know, that, that's, that's the nature of internal party politics. You know, if there's only one job, not, not everybody slag can Slag each get other it, off, but, but afterwards... No, we friends. never slagged each other off. No. <laughs> no, but what... I think what... Is, I just presumed you were going to be the candidate for London Mayor based on the media re- reporting of it. And what the media have been saying this week is that Nigel changed the rules so that Peter could become mayor. That's not very fair on Peter, is it? Um, you well, trying to get me sacked. Again. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, well, I think I, th- I have to say, if there's, any, if there's one thing I'd say about the process, I do think it was a bit unfortunate that the London members didn't all have a vote. I think that would have been fairer, and it would have been more transparent, and then there wouldn't have been this sort of whispering campaign afterwards. But uh, I'm still going to be writing the London Manifesto. Um, I'm third on the GLA list, which uh, I, I'm going to work damned hard to try and get myself elected as well. Um, it just obviously looks to the outside that Nigel has orchestrated this so that you don't get it. Is there any truth in that, do you think? I've got no evidence to suggest that whatsoever. Because <laughs> <laughs> for a period, I mean, you were, you were briefly leader of UKIP. When well, Nigel I, resigned, yeah, sort you were for about five minutes when, you, yeah, when yeah. the stationery had changed and then was, was changed back again. I mean, sort at that of. point, at, at that point where Nigel resigned or didn't resign or whatever happened, were you then preparing to lead the party in a serious way? Were you, were you actually going to stand for the leadership? Was that well, what, what happened was uh, Nigel obviously resigned. And I was never actually made leader of the party. It had to be ratified by the National Executive Committee the following Monday. And uh, they refused to accept Nigel's resignation, so I was never actually leader. Um, but of course, in that weekend, inevitably, yeah, I had to think, right, well, what am I going to do now? Um, I probably got this job for about three months. And whether I'd have stood again for the leadership or not, I, I really don't know. I might have done. I might not have done. There might have been somebody else I wanted to support. But I did, I did spend a weekend thinking, yeah, what I'm going to do for the next three months. But as it happened, I never got the chance. Well, not yet, because politics changes quick, doesn't it? But I, I just wonder if, if there's going to be a referendum next year. If Hopefully the, next year, if yes. The, yeah. I mean, if the British people choose to stay in the EU, does Nigel then resign again? You know, you, you, maybe this time for ten minutes. You might get <laughs> double the amount of time you I was never very good at reading the tea leaves. I don't know. But do you then... I mean, every politician has a level of ambition, don't they? Do, do you one day have the ambition to leave the party? I, uh, this is going to be a very politician's answer. Uh, if people feel I'm the right person at the time, then I may well do. But at the moment, there's no vacancy, so I'm certainly not thinking about it at the moment. And when the time comes, there may very well be somebody else. You know, I wasn't in UKIP two years ago, and now people are talking about me leading the party. Uh, in another two years' time, who knows who else might be around who might be fantastic, and I want to support them. So do you think you get more Tory defections to UKIP? Because it feels like that's all gone a bit quiet now. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. This isn't something that I'm privy to in the sort of internal machinations of the party. Obviously, if Tory MPs are thinking of defecting, it's probably not me they'll come and talk to. Uh, I really think we could get a Labour defector too, just as easily, because quite interestingly, we are picking up a lot more Labour voters now, former Labour voters, than we are Tory voters. And I think it was Lord Ashcroft did some research and he showed that actually it's much easier. Get such all sorts of things. Which is to get it in when I think, was the... Uh, don't tell Porky's. Um, uh, no, and uh, he showed that actually Labour voters are, are far qui- find it much easier and quicker to switch to voting UKIP than actually Conservative voters do. Uh, and of course, you know, your hard-bitten Labour supporter or you, you know, lifelong Labour man or woman is never going to vote Tory. Yeah. They're never going to vote Tory, but they will vote UKIP. So do you, if you were to think of like Labour MPs that would be on the margins of coming up, so just as you'd have looked at Reckless and Carswell a couple of years ago and said, well, they have potential UKIP defectors, who would be potential oh, Labour defectors? I possibly say that. That would be most unfair. And I, people might then start to be very suspicious of them before they, you know, they might be in trouble. I couldn't possibly... That's great, get him into trouble. Let's start a rumour. <laughs> Simon Danchuk, do you think? He's got a new girlfriend I was reading earlier. He has indeed. Yeah, yeah, good for him. Is she European? Yeah. Is she? I Where don't know. Well, I presume she's European. But, uh, I don't know. Why? Know. I that. Um, <laughs> why? I'm just trying to sort of figure out the logic of if it would suggest that he was going to do Oh, I see. Well, I don't know. Because there's whispers sometimes, aren't there? I mean, do you ever. You must get loads of gossip at UKIP. Oh, uh, well, yeah, but not about that. <laughs> what about? What about? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I won't tell anyone, I promise. Okay. Just between you and me. Well, sort of. So, with, with, with Nigel then. Yeah. Um, and Douglas Carswell. Yes. There seems to be a little bit of a rivalry developing there. I don't think there's rivalry. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's right. What sort I, of hatred? I don't... <laughs> no, no, no. I think perhaps, you know, there is a robust debate on certain issues. But that's good, you know. I've, I've had robust debates with Douglas on things. And I, I've had robust debates with Nigel on things. Yeah, and all sorts of people. Yeah, yeah. What's it like behind the scenes, Nigel? You know, if you've got a policy disagreement or a personal disagreement, how, 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 how do the conversations go? Um, well... <laughs> I was just thinking actually usually they go very well yeah. I'll tell you about once the fir- he's sobered up <laughs> that's creepy. I'll tell you the first time I met Nigel and this will be quite surprising I was um, one of the things I've, I've campaigned about for a long time before I even got involved in politics was uh, against female genital mutilation FGM which is just atrocious and as a result of that when I joined UKIP I was asked to join a policy group to discuss this issue and to talk about how we might uh, deal with it and put it in our manifesto going forward. So I trundled up to head office and it just so happened that Nigel was there that day. So we had about a couple of hours batting around policy, coming up with various ideas. And then the girl who was leading the meeting said, right, let's go and see what Nigel thinks. And I thought, crumbs, Nigel Farage talking about FGM. This is going to be very interesting. Um, And we went to see him, and he looked at the list, and he said, right, that'll work, that won't, that will, this will be fine if you do that, and da-da-da-da-da. And I thought, my God, this man's amazing. He knows about everything. And that is the thing about Nigel. He has this, uh, he he really is across just about every subject you can think of. And if you think about it, he's been in politics for 22 years. 
Um, and I think that was the, that, 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 you know, you see this jovial, jolly guy in the pub and you make jokes about his drinking and so on and so forth, but actually there is a heck of a lot more to him than that. And I think it's sad that the media and the, the public doesn't see that more often. But what about... What... <laughs> For the benefit of the tape, two UKIP supporters just clapped <laughs> <laughs> <Quite> very loudly. <laughs> I want to think there was a door flapping in the wind. Uh... <laughs> what was that? Um... What about that when you probably disagree? Because I imagine he's got a foul tempo when he wants to go off. No, actually, no, no. You'd be, you'd be so very wrong. Fucking hell, Suzanne. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I think what's one of the things that that, that absolutely he uh, we have disagreed, I, uh, and he actually was very kind and. Uh, very straightforward and he said look I'm sorry this just isn't going to work and it won't work because of this and that's that and he was seriously that calm yeah he doesn't lose his temper or, or at least if he does I've never seen him lose his temper he doesn't chuck bottles on the floor either sorry glass you that he's um... <laughs> He, uh, well, I think he keeps his calm very well under pressure. Yeah, I think interview. he does. So you, you, yes. uh, you know, yeah. Perhaps I was wrong to presume that he, he could sort of blow No, I, I, I certainly don't have, a, have an impression of him at all. But, and certainly, absolutely, as I say, no evidence that I've seen that he loses his rag. No. So, but there, there does seem to be a sort of power struggle between him and Carswell now, doesn't there? There was that sort of brief period after the election where Nigel said he was going and then Douglas said, I'm not calling him on to resign, I'm, I'm just saying he should have a, 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 a bit of a holiday. Mm. I mean... And I think Douglas meant that literally. He did literally mean a holiday. And again, this is something that got completely blown up out of all proportion. And a bit in politics, a holiday means he no. used to fuck off. <laughs> no. I, I don't agree. I don't agree. It's a long holiday on a fucking slab. <laughs> it, it, it you know what? He's and I thought I was cynical. And he's been working very hard. And uh, I think he just needs to go to Ibiza for a couple of weeks. It usually means get him out of the way, doesn't it? No, I don't. Well, I don't think it did. It might do in the other parties, but not in UKIP. In UKIP, Douglas Coswell genuinely just wanted a night. It meant go fishing. Have a bit of R and R. It meant go fishing. Go yeah. to the beach for a bit. Um, yeah. Because it does feel as if though Coswell is now sort of under suspicion. Like, is he is he slightly outside the camp at the moment? Would you say? What do you mean by the camp? Well, the, the sort of core leadership group. Well, he can't be. No, I mean, he is our one and only MP, and uh, you know, so he's kind of got, he's kind of got a pretty important role, really. Uh, I don't really see that that could be construed as being outside the cab. No. He's had his fair share of detractors, aren't he? I mean, I'm just thinking of what Aaron Banks said about him. Oh, yeah. So yeah. He's borderline autistic with some yeah, mental illness was, attached. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which he's since apologised for. Good. Damn well should she? It was atrocious. But there's that, no, I mean, you know, there's no, there's just no excuse for that, is there? But does that represent a, a, a sort of no. strand of opinion within UKIP? Is no. Carswell seems sort of like an ugly duckling? Or? No, no, I think Aaron Banks really went off on one there. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody sort of got like, sort of like a sort of support act in the crowd, sort of chipping in. Um, I need all the support I can get. Everybody needs support. They do. I, I mean, but I really liked Douglas Carswell, and I, I was yes. impressed with the way that he handled the by-election. I thought. Mm. And he's always been an interesting person. He's someone that, regardless of what side you are on the ideological divide, he's always made 
thoughtful and interesting and provocative in the right way contributions to various national debates. Yeah. He's incredibly and, brave, incredibly astute, incredibly intelligent, and incredibly well-loved. I think when he um, stood down and defected to UKIP and called a by-election, which was... He didn't have to do that. He put his whole career on the line there. Uh, and the most incredible thing was when he went out canvassing in Clacton, he were knocking on doors. Every single door I knocked on, most people were going to vote for him anyway, uh, every single door said, he's either helped me or he's helped my friend or he's helped a member of my family. Everybody knew him, and, and that's quite unusual, actually. A lot of people don't know who their MP is. Yeah. And Douglas undoubtedly had the support of that community. And I met a lot of people that said, I'm so glad he's gone to UKIP because I was thinking about voting UKIP, but I wanted to vote for Douglas Carswell. That dilemma has been taken off my hands now. And he's been elected as a UKIP MP twice now. Twice uh, now. In, the, in the last couple of years. Uh, Mark Res Reckless suddenly yeah, wasn't that as, was uh, as, as fortunate. Um, mm, very sad. How is he? He's good. He's now heading up our policy unit. And, um, yeah, he's, he's doing a very good job. I'm working with him closely on the London Manifesto. No, it was very upsetting. When, I was very upset when, Douglas did, uh, when uh, Mark didn't get elected again. And Nigel not getting elected in, that in was, South That was awful as well. That, that, was felt, felt, that was a surprise to a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, that, that, was, that was devastating. Because it felt like the, the a sort of a constituency that was very winnable and, mm. and Farage is the most... Mm sort of prized asset, really. And I, and I think this was the problem, you know, because it was Nigel, the other parties just threw everything they've got at it. And, yeah. of course, they're much bigger than us. They have bigger donors than us. They have bigger funding. Uh, they've got more people. And they just chucked absolutely everything at it. They were determined not to let him get in, and, unfortunately, they succeeded. And, of course, Al Murray and the Free United Kingdom Party really sort of... Oh, yeah, what did he get, about 300 votes or something? 318. Oh, I thought uh, it was 318. Yeah. <laughs> I was his campaign manager. Were uh, you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... As a joke, obviously. It was, that was terrible we, then, wasn't it? You didn't do a very good job, did you? Well, no, no, I mean, it was... <laughs> well, no. <laughs> but, just as with other joke candidates who didn't do very well, uh, he lost. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't... It, it, I mean, it was... It was How much did he spend on his campaign, though? He must have spent a fortune. I don't think so. It was all within the legal limit. Well, I'm not suggesting it was... <laughs> <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Point. Um, there was a, I mean, I hate to sort of continually talk about the sort of 
inner workings of UKIP. But this is this is the reality. These are the growing pains, aren't they? Relatively new parties. Yeah. Where, you know, the Labour Party has its clear wings and its clear direction. As do the Tories. The Lib Dems That's actually. That's it. The Labour to... Party has a clear direction at the moment. Are you sure about that? Well, it's clearly going left. <laughs> <laughs> well, half of it is. The other half, I'm not quite sure where it's going. Well, indeed, but, you, but there is a sense that the party is shifting to the left. People know what direction the leadership wants it to go in now. And with UKIP, there still feels like there's, there's fleshing out of the right of the party, the left of the party, the centre of the party. In terms of UKIP as a group, would you say you're on the left, the centre or the right of it? I, I honestly believe we're in the common sense centre. That's how I portray it. And I think on some issues we're... I, I really don't like this left and right nonsense, actually. I, I, I think it's... Um, people, people accuse you of being right-wing if they don't agree with you if you're on the left. Uh, if you're on the no, right and you don't agree with people, they accuse you of being left-wing. I mean, what is right and left-wing? You know, the amount of times UKIP's been called a far-right Nazi party. I mean, I'm sorry, the Nazis were socialists. Get over it. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense, and people don't understand... I think they use right and left as terms of abuse without really thinking about what they actually mean. But within, within the UKIP group, if there, if there are wings within the party, and presumably there are people who are sort of closer to the left of the party and closer to the right of the party, within UKIP, would you say you were sort of on the left of it, in the middle, on the right? No, I think I'm in the middle. Yeah, definitely. I think, look at the manifesto, common sense policies. You know, so we had what are typically left-wing policies of, uh, you know, scrapping the bedroom tax, um, taking everybody on minimum wage out of tax altogether. But, it, but, is that but then we had sort of. Or is that populism? Ah, well, I'm sorry, but what it, populism, people use this word populism. What is that but giving the people what they want? And surely that's what politicians are for, <laughs> isn't it? But different people want different things. Well, you can't please everybody all of the time, no, but I hope everybody in this room would agree that if a minimum wage is a Somebody minimum wage, then why the hell should you be taxed on it? doesn't I make agree. any sense. I agree, but it, it felt like it kind of came out of a clear blue sky, or a purple one. Um, it, as with the NHS investment, it felt almost as though you felt that they had to flesh out that side of their offer to not appear too right-wing. Well, that, may, maybe, that maybe that does have something to do with the fact that we're broadening our scope in terms of policy, that the fact that we've now got uh, you know, nearly 50,000 members as opposed to every money we might have had in 2010 when the first manifesto was done. And inevitably, any party as it takes on new people is going to grow and evolve and change. And I think that's, that's, that's only a good thing. It certainly, it, it, it certainly feels like it's diversified mm. and has um, calmed down a bit. Since its inception, I think there is. You can be certainly taken more seriously by the other political parties, yeah. and obviously this referendum campaign will be. I mean, is there a sense? Do you look at the, the the Scottish referendum and think, you know what? Even if we lose it, we could end up being the winners. Well, I kind of do, and I don't. I I, I try not to think like that because just because the SNP have had this surge. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that any party that fights and loses a referendum is going to have a surge. I think that's that's nonsense. It just doesn't make any logical sense. But uh, and also because I want to sodding well win this you know i really want to win this i think we can win it i think that you only have to turn your television screens on now and actually events of the day are helping to win it for us you know well <laughs> i wasn't quite thinking of that one but i was i was you know you look at greece 
Yeah. So many people now on the left of politics who were traditionally very in favour of the EU, people like George Monbiot, people like Owen Jones, are now saying, hang on a minute, Greece has made me think, uh, Greece has made me think again. Mm. Actually, I can see how the European uh, dictators, if you like, absolutely hammered this country into the ground, forced them to adopt the euro, forced them to go down this particular policy economic line, and now they've screwed them over. You look at the immigration crisis that we've got, uh, Afghans and um, Syrians and Turks and Kurds having running battles on the streets in Croatia because Angela Merkel, in her wisdom, said, calm, calm, like she was a teenager and put a house party on Facebook, you know, and then get surprised when people turn up. And, and the, the, very often the news agenda at the moment, I think, is actually helping to make the case for us. But isn't there a sense, actually, that you can slightly outstep with the rest of population in terms of the migrant crisis and that there's a genuine sense that these are people no. fleeing no, deep, not. deep violence and no. actually no, th th there should be a more humane response. I, I, two, you're confusing two separate issues. If you actually look at polling, uh, the majority of the population actually think we are doing enough. And unfortunately, I think it's the people that are, are holding up the refugees welcome sign who are actually in the minority now. However, that said, we have to make a distinction between genuine refugees yeah. and economic migrants who are jumping on the bandwagon. I absolutely, we must take genuine refugees. We help create the police awfulness in Syria and Iraq, for God's sake. And so therefore, we've got to help those people. We absolutely must. But that doesn't mean that we, we, that we, can, we can let others who are jumping on this bandwagon use that as an excuse and let everybody in. That would be letting down those people. It would be letting down the countries they're coming from because they will need good, good young, educated people to help rebuild those countries when they can get their, their stability back. And it would be letting down the genuine refugees who will be trying to come here, but there will be no space for them because they will have had others jump ahead of them in the queue. In terms of free movement of labour across the Eurozone and including uh, the EU and Britain, yeah, what, what is going on out there? Is, is, there, is there an issue? You are? I mean, pe people will get the chance to ask questions when the mic comes down. I was aware that there were a couple of people talking there. Is there a specific problem? I think not. Who was it? UK. UK. But yeah, but you can't. But I was trying to listen to the voice of UKIP and there, there was another voice of UKIP in the back. Disagreeing with you, I think. They're just disagreeing with each other. <laughs> so, so this was... So, so this is... So, is there disagreement in the, in, in the party over this? Yeah, but conversations are fine. It just depends where you have them. <laughs> You can have them afterwards when you're not sat around paying punters who've come to listen to someone else. That's fine. Is it? it is a pub. Well, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a venue. Theatre. Uh, yeah, come on. It's a theatre, exactly. Yeah, and you, you're standing for an election next year, mate. I mean, you should be on a charm offensive, shouldn't you? He's paying. He's paying. We'll chat about it afterwards in the bar, eh? That's it. Or the, uh, or the, or, or the, uh, the policy centre, as you keep calling it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the boardroom. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I understand the, the issues around free movement and, and, and the issues that not just you keep have, but people who are um, 
people left and right would, would have with, uh, with, with, with disproportionate numbers of people mm. being moved around the place. You see, Mill always amazes me how it's the left that has the problem with immigration. Yet it's uh, when you when you have we've got one million fewer unskilled people in work now than we did in 1997 before Tony Blair decided to have a policy to open the borders effectively. Um, and you've got the left, and particularly Blair's Labour Party, being all ideological about this. But again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about these policies that are sort of communist, if you like. It's the poor that always suffer. It's the poor people that can't get jobs. It's the poor people uh, and the uneducated people who haven't, can't get those unskilled jobs that I had no problem getting when I was a kid. You know, when I was standing for election in Shrewsbury and Atcham uh, back in the summer, uh, in the spring, I met so many uh, young people who could not get a job in their local shop, in their local bar, working in childcare, wearing, walking in care homes. I, I got all those jobs on a Saturday when I was a kid. And those kind of jobs now have gone. But is that the fault of immigration? Well, partly, yes, because we've got too many people. If you've got, so, like I said, if you've got 600,000 people coming in every year, of course there's going to be pressure for jobs. It's, it makes common sense. But if these people are bringing investment, they're actually generating... But they're not all bringing investment, are they? Well, the study that said that they contributed, I think it was 5.8 billion over Well, I, I, I remember that study very well. They first of all assumed that every single immigrant coming into the country had exactly the same average wealth as everyone already here. There were a huge amount of flaws in that study. And but it was, I won't go into the to detail date, of it, but the most definitive and the most reliable. Actually, I don't think it is. I think there was a there was a more recent study that was that was done by Migration Watch, which suggested something very different. Are they seen as wholly independent migration? Uh, well, you might want to argue. Who, who did the other study? Who did the other study? I don't think they were. It was an organisation called Creme Cream. I don't think they were terribly independent either, to be honest. And this is the problem. You know, no government ever... There's, there's two major studies that no government has ever dared to do. One is to look at a cost-benefit analysis of our membership of the European Union. And the other is to do a really serious cost-benefit analysis of immigration. They're not prepared to do it. And you have to ask yourself, why not? Cost too much. <laughs> but we were talking about the referendum. I, I, I wonder if, let's say, you win the referendum. Hooray, please and God. The U. Why yeah. don't you keep then? Well, we carry on going because <laughs> winning, winning, no, seriously, winning the referendum, one, who's to say that the thing, the thing is about a referendum is it's not binding, is it? So 99% of the country could vote to leave the European Union, but it's not binding. A referendum is only a barometer of opinion. It's not a legal process by which you have to enact it. So, first of all, we need to be driving that message through and making sure that we do actually leave. And secondly, because I think we're the only party that actually has a vision of how British exit, what Brexit will actually look like, and how we will actually get out. So we will need to be there holding their hands and making sure they do it properly. <laughs> do you think Cameron actually would, if he loses a referendum on membership of the EU not effectively deliver on it? Yes, they did it in Ireland on the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, Ireland voted not to accept the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, they made them But they had another again. referendum. They had another referendum, exactly. They said, no, sorry, wrong answer, do it again. Uh, and that's happened in other European Union countries as well. And, of course, the Dutch are having a referendum now on their membership. So that will be very interesting to see how that goes. But, uh, so let's say... Britain votes to leave the EU and Cameron delivers on the promise and Britain actually does leave, mm -hmm. what then happens to UK? Well, 
I think, as I say, we have uh, other policies as well, and I think we have established ourselves as the voice of common sense in politics. And uh, we, we uh, I, 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 as I say, I haven't got a crystal ball. Um, I suppose if we deliver every single UKIP objective that there ever is, uh, then we will have to think about where we go. But I, I don't think that's going to happen, and I'm sure there will still be a role for us in British politics. But would you keep the name UKIP? Ah, now that's a very good question. We might have to rethink that if we are independent. Wouldn't we? Yeah. But uh, lots of lots of parties rebrand. The, the I am stuff. The UK party. Yeah, the UK party. Yeah, yeah. UK party. Keep. There's no I. In keep UK. the KUKIP. Keep the UK Independence Party. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> I, I just I just wonder if actually there's not a sense amongst UKIP supporters, maybe even senior UKIP politicians, that the best thing to do would actually lose the referendum. Not, no, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think we're all so passionate about it. It's the one thing that we all have in common. Every single member of UKIP, every single person that goes out on the streets, delivers leaflets, signs up, likes a page on Facebook, whatever it might be, <laughs> we are all absolutely 100% committed to that one thing. And maybe any other party that's got such a, such a cohesive um, uh, agreement on any one policy, that's our yes, strength. MP. <laughs> All right, okay, that was They that. have cohesive agreement on every that was single crap. policy. Can we, can we do that bit again? <laughs> <laughs> well, they have cohesive agreement on every party, thanks to the contracts they all had to sign before the election. Which, uh, oh, which are now... Forced them yes, to all... They, they won't deviate from the party line yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, in fact, next month we have Tommy Shepard, our first oh, uh, SNP guest. Okay. Nice guy, isn't he? They're very, um, yeah, well, I suppose it's like UKIP politicians. They, they you know, come across very well because of what they believe in. They're all 100% committed to it, so, yeah. I, in terms of the referendum, then, what sort of margin of victory would you accept as... I mean, if you lose within, say, 5 or 6%, are you then on a campaign to say, look, we need to have another one as soon as possible? If you lose by 40%, is that over forever? If you win by 1%, is it a stunning victory? Um, 51% would do us nicely. Thank you very much to leave. That would be great. Uh, if we don't win, then we will carry on campaigning because uh, just because we lose one, one referendum doesn't mean that we have to hang up our uh, rosettes and stop campaigning. Um, we were, and then the really worrying thing, I think, about this referendum is if we don't win it, is the European Union will then take it as a, uh, a sort of green light to go forging ahead to full political union full monetary union, EU army, EU police force, single treasury, uh, unified tax system. Cats and dogs living you know, together, no, mass system. Yeah, no, whatever you like, that'll be it. It'll be straight down the track. So that's why this is re referendum really is very important. Are these things being sort of war-gamed at the moment within UKIP? Are people saying, like, if we lose by this amount, if we win by that amount, are these things... Not to my knowledge, no. Is there a sort of flowchart with... <laughs> do we win? Yes. If so, do we keep going? Yeah. Is it that sort of thing? Or people must be thinking through what the different um, scenarios. Well, also be. the other thing you have to remember is this is this isn't just about UKIP. There are politicians in all parties who are committed to leaving, and at some point there will be an official leave campaign set up. Yeah. They will get money from the electoral commission, and I hope we will. You know, join with them on a cross-party basis and work with businesses, but work with, you know, we might even work with Al Murray, you know, people, show business people, whoever it might be. Um, this isn't just about politics. There are lots of other people who have vested interests in leaving the European Union as well. And I want to campaign with absolutely everybody to, to get out. So in terms of the, the official 
Leave campaign. Mm. There, are two, there are two sort of major players at the moment on that side. There's Leave.eu mm -hmm. and there's Business for Britain. Yeah. And Nigel is keen on Leave.eu. Yeah. Douglas is more sort of Business for Britain. Um, which one are you... Well, I think you know, Nigel's obviously very keen on Leave EU because Aaron Banks has, is fronting that and he's been a, one of our significant donors yeah. and clearly helped us to you know, win the European yeah. elections and helped us support the uh, general yeah. elections and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So I think it's, it's absolutely quite right that we should, uh, we, we should support that. And I think until the Electoral Commission makes their decision, I, I think we should support both sides and I'm certainly talking to both sides. And do you, is there a danger of a split? Is there a danger that actually, if Douglas Carswell feels differently, I mean, it's the same problem. Douglas Carswell will get behind whoever is elected to to be the official campaign. I have of that, I have no doubt. Is there a danger though that within the uh, anti-EU campaign, the Leave campaign, that actually these these splits will become more public and dangerous as a result? I hope not, because I think that will deflect from the real issue. I, I think there might be elements of the uh, stay-in campaign and maybe even elements of the pro-EU media that will want to try and find splits and will try and create division. And uh, I, I think the message I want to say is, well, guys, you know, come on, we've got to group together. We mustn't let them succeed because there are bigger things at stake. It'd be interesting to see the cross-party nature of it because obviously you had Better Together in Scotland that was this sort of patchwork yeah. quilt of different parties and that created its own problems whereas the, the Yes campaign was almost exclusive the SNP and, and had great strength as a result even though they lost um, I mean who, who, who are the people in the other parties you're talking to at the moment in terms of this cross-party nature? Well, I think, I think uh, as, far, as far as I'm aware, um, the Business for Britain campaign certainly has got MPs from other parties involved. I don't know who because I'm not privy to that. Peter but, Bone. I, but I'm told, I, I, would, I would be surprised if he weren't. Yeah, people, uh, people like Owen Patterson, who I was debating with at the Cambridge Union the other day, and John Redwood <laughs> from the Conservative Party, uh, John Mills from the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, I'm sure they're all on board. So they, do, you, do you have friends in other parties, people that you get on with? <laughs> um, well, at, at a social level, yes, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah, who friends who vote Labour or Tory or whatever. Yes, of course they do. Yeah. But politicians, are there people from other parties that you get on with across the ideological divide, even if you don't have... I suppose I'm just trying to think. Not, not, not sort of socially, really. No, I, I, I don't think so. But, but certainly when I meet people on the media circuit, as I say, it was lovely to be with the, the two Johns yeah. and uh, three, uh, three Johns. No, no, two Johns and an Owen. Uh, the other, the other night was was great, and there are certainly people who I meet who I'm very friendly with. Yes, but um, you do a lot of media stuff uh, mm. for the party, so you must meet people from the party. You that, do. Uh, yes. Are there particular yeah. Labour people that you got on with more than others who um, disagree with? Them? I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. No. Alan Johnson. I haven't met Alan Johnson. Oh, he's a lovely fella. Is he? Oh, we yeah. should set up a meeting. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah, you yeah, he's a, he's a very nice one. No, I just think it's always nice to hear about who people. Yeah. I suppose it's different for you. I guess I'm very well with Owen Jones, actually. On what grounds? Oh, just, just, uh, just, just. I think we we actually have a few things in common. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we we were both actually tweeting today about Jeremy Corbyn. The one thing I liked about Jeremy, well, a couple of things I liked about Jeremy Corbyn, but you know, when he attacked Saudi Arabia, I was there behind him. I <laughs> you know, why the hell we we kowtow to this brutal regime is completely beyond me. And so Owen and I were both cheering on Jeremy Corbyn for that one. 
See that. I mean, that's something that a lot of people could unite uh, mm. around, isn't it? Because it feels almost non-ideological. Well, then I think, actually, now I think, about it, now I think about it, Tim Montgomery, uh, the editor of Conservative Home, waded in as well. And I said, look, you know, maybe we should do a cross-party campaign on this. On Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Heard it here first. It's a scoop. Mm-hmm. Um, right, I'm keen well, to... Well, no, it was on Twitter. Twitter oh, right. Moment, well, yeah. So it's not quite well, a scoop. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> um, right, let's, uh, let's just raise the house lights a second. Uh, we've got a roving mic, so if people want to put their hand up if anyone's got a question... Um, and uh, we'll get round as, uh, as many of you as you can. Yes, so the gentleman down at the front, just wait for the uh, microphone to come across and just uh, let us know your name and we'll crack on. Uh, William Hill, I was interested in your comments on... What, the bookmaker? No, afraid not. Oh. Uh, I was interested in your comments <laughs> on female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. Why have there been no prosecutions? Oh, exactly. I mean, absolutely disgraceful, isn't it? Absolutely disgraceful. Illegal since 1985. They've had over 100 prosecutions in France in the same time, but absolutely none in this country. And it completely baffles me. I think you think of the prosecutions that we've had um, for parents who have uh, abused their children uh, physically, mentally, whatever it might be. I mean, a clearer form of child abuse you cannot see in this. So why the hell the parents haven't been prosecuted is utterly beyond me. OK, let's try and lighten the mood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the gentleman over there. Thank you. Um, I'm very unclear about where you could stand with David Cameron's promise to about 20,000 Syrian immigrants into the country. And I believe with your stance on immigration, I would have thought you'd be in the forefront of expressing some opinion or other, but I find it very silent, in fact, about your, uh, and maybe you have a different opinion to UKIP, God help it, but it'd be interesting to your opinion as opposed to maybe UKIP's opinion if it's different. Okay, well, first of all, Nigel Farage was actually the very first politician that suggested we should take any Syrian refugees at all. Uh, you might recall um, that, that there was a, a vote in Parliament about this, or, or there were certainly discussions in Parliament about this, and uh, Cameron was saying we shouldn't take any. And Nigel Farage said, sorry, Mr Cameron, you're wrong. We should. We help create this problem. We should take them. My personal opinion is that um, 20,000 over the course of the next five years, I think, is uh, sensible. And I really think it's sensible also that he's taking them from the camps as opposed to taking the people that are coming over in boats, because we know that they are the ones that would have been processed by the United Nations Commission, High Commission for Refugees. We know they're genuine, and they're the ones that I want to give homes to first. I mean, in terms of... I think sometimes what people struggle with, and I think unfairly on their part, is that um, there seems to be sometimes a lack of... public expression from UKIP about the desperate human crisis that happens in these places. We understand the tough messages, totally understand why you would want to take legitimate refugees and not those who come on boats. Do you sometimes worry that UKIP can appear a little uncaring? Yeah, and you know what, I think that's because of... um, (laughs) My third guest tonight is Alex Phillips, who's one of UKIP's press officers. And I'm sure Alex would tell you that very often she puts out press releases, our press office puts out press releases on all manner of issues, but it only gets picked up if it's something that the media wants to uh, make UKIP look anti about. And again, I think that's very unfortunate. It's very difficult. The media has this picture of us. Um, When we feed into that stereotype, everybody wants to talk to us. When we want to say something different, it's very much more difficult to actually get the press to take it up. It's a great shame. So you occasionally put out sort of like compassionate ones? All the time, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and not just compatible, you know, stuff on all sorts of issues. Say, for instance, we've been trying to highlight uh, this week um, that you've got the steel plant up in Redcar and Teesside that's closing with a loss of 2,000 jobs. Part of the reason it's been closing is because of the EU. Absolutely, on two, two counts. <laughs> One, because uh, EU, e, the EU uh, rules mean we can't give it state transitional aid. Yeah. So the state's not allowed to step in and help support those jobs in the short term and to get it back on its feet again. And secondly, because of the EU's climate change policies, have sent energy prices rocketing, which is, means it's not able to compete uh, effectively in the marketplace anymore. And we've been trying to get that out, haven't we, Alex? And has anyone picked it up? No. There you go. Maybe soften it a bit, put a picture of kittens on the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, any more questions? Uh, yes, I'll take the, the lady down here and then we can sort of move on from this blog. Cheers, Tris. Yeah. <laughs> it's Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Um, nice to see you. Um, you're clearly very intelligent, very articulate. Do you find that you get considerably more interest in you now that you've become um, part of the UKIP situation rather than being a Tory? A, a Conservative, sorry. Yeah. A Conservative um, council? Well, I suppose there's a big difference because I'm Deputy Chairman of UKIP and I do a lot of media. Whereas when I was a Conservative councillor, um, I didn't have that kind of public profile. So inevitably, that there's a massive difference there. Um, so that's an incentive for Tories to join UKIP, because they actually could then be... But actually, but, but for personal profile reasons, is that partly where you're coming from? But actually, you could become famous! Did I, did I, did I, 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 never, I never expected this to happen. When I, when I defected from the Conservatives to join UKIP, um, I thought that was the end of my political career. I really did. I, I left the, the Conservative Party and joined UKIP on principle, and I didn't expect to get re-elected as a Conservative councillor because I'd stood in this, one of the safest Conservative um, wards in, in the council. And sure enough, I didn't get re-elected. And as, as I say, I, I really thought that was it for me. So back to what I said right at the very beginning, nobody's more surprised than me to be, to be here, really. I suppose you could be the genuine party of ambition. If you want to get on in politics, there's a sort of quick route to the top. Well, I don't think that's quite true. <laughs> it's happened in my case, arguably. Um, but like I say, I didn't plan it. Really didn't. I, I'm absolutely gobsmacked. <laughs> okay, take some questions from this section here. Yes, the, the lady there on the. Hi, um, I just wanted to get your opinion. You were talking about getting rid of the crazy in UKIP. When someone like Katie Hopkins speaks at your conference, <laughs> does that help? Does that help that agenda, or are you just perpetuating your crazy? Well, Katie Hopkins, um, <laughs> very interesting woman. Uh, she spoke at our conference and actually she wasn't invited by us. She was invited by the Electoral Reform Society who were doing a fringe event, of which in fact I, I was one of the people that took part in that. So, so actually although she was at UKIP conference, she wasn't invited by UKIP, she was invited by a third party. And did you agree with what she said? Some of it. She was talking about uh, uh, electoral reform. Uh, she was talking about how, you know, the fact that UKIP got one MP and 3.8 million votes was undemocratic, which I agree with. Uh, but did I agree with uh, her, her, you know, I, yeah, I didn't agree with all of what she said. She, the thing about Katie Hopkins is, let's be honest, she does it to make a living, doesn't she? Yeah. She says this stuff, which gets reported and everyone goes nuts and she gets another 50 grand in her bank account. 
I completely agree. Um, but I'm, I'm fascinated as to what her opinion is on electoral reform. Oh, she's absolutely... <laughs> <laughs> she's actually a passionate supporter of PR and electoral reform. Yeah, she must have said she something really about... Is. She would have said something derogatory about people who support First Past the Post. Mm-hmm. That's the way she works. I'm trying to think what she said. I know she said she made some stupid joke about gassing everybody in the House of Lords. Uh, which, which uh, was, I mean, it was quite clear. After joke. the applause had died down, <laughs> quite clear uh... joke. Um, but that's what she does. You know, she's controversial. She's deliberately controversial. That's how she makes a living. And um, some people are quite clearly prepared to pay her to make a living that way. So there you go. Uh, anyone else from down here? Yes, the gentleman down at the front. And then, uh, there, is there anyone on the balcony that likes to ask questions? No, I can. Okay. Hello, uh, my name's David. Um, Lots of sympathy for the point you made there earlier about putting out press releases that don't get picked up. But do you think Is that the voice of experience, David? <laughs> yes. <laughs> In what capacity? Uh, work on communications, or yeah. you used to do at least. Um, but do you think sometimes when you're trying to put out this message, you're a bit undermined when you relate sort of that to situations with a leader of the German state offering refugees to uh, as being a Facebook party? Do, do, do I think I'm wrong to say that? Yes. Well, I think, I think what politics suffers from sometimes is being a little bit too um, highfalutin and taking things out of the realm of people's ordinary experience. And I think all of us can identify with that analogy of putting a post on a Facebook party. Maybe not now. People are a little bit more sensible about Facebook. But when Facebook first came out, you know, every every single... Well, I don't know. What's that? (laughs) I'm not adding you. To delete it off um, my you know, every single parent of teenagers was terrified that mm. their kid would put some, I'm having a party at blah, 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 yeah. do turn up and that th- they'd come up. So, so it's an analogy. Um, I thought this was a comedy show. Maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Suzanne. I think it's, I think it's a, it fine to use light-hearted analogies, but equally, I suppose that's the, that's the problem that you keep having, isn't it, is that sometimes you say you want to be serious... Yeah. When, the, when are the public supposed to know when you're being serious and when are they supposed to know when you're being like hard, I suppose? Mm-hmm. It's difficult for people to understand sometimes. That's a very hard question to understand. Um, I, well, well, I guess what I'm saying is it feels sometimes like you get picks and choose when it wants to be earnest and when it wants to be light-hearted. And that can be hard I, for people. I, I don't know. I think you can't... Even politics is very serious business. Um, but if you can get it away, in a, if you can get points over in a light-hearted way, that will perhaps make people think a little bit differently about an issue. I don't see any harm in that. No, I agree. Um, right, up on the balcony, who did we have up there? Sorry, Tristan's got to get the mic back. Can we just... The lights are right now, so I can't see... That's really hot. Just wave at me. <laughs> oh, there, OK, so it's, it's in the front corner. Just get the crystal, Tris, get the crystal. My name's Tom. Can you hear Yes, can hear you, Tom. Hello. Okay, okay. Can hear, but I can't see it. It's really speaking. When is going to apologise to Nigel Farage for berating him about an EU army? Oh, yes, what a great question. And Ed Miliband, <laughs> and Ed Miliband for swatting away that suggestion in the general election debate. Yeah. So when is Nick Clegg going to apologise to Nigel? Never. <laughs> Knowing Nick Clegg. <laughs> no, that was ridiculous. You know... Um, President Juncker has now said that there's going to be an EU army. I think Education Minister in Germany has said he wants an EU army. Angela Merkel has talked about an EU army. Loads of people now have said that this is definitely on the cards. And we have known it from the word go. Edward Heath knew it, for God's sake, back in 1974. But then, if it, from 74 to 2015, there's still no EU army. 
No, but it's on the it's on the agenda. They all want it. The thing. Oh, this is really fascinating. I I. Uh, I've looked back at what happened around the time of the 1975 referendum, which was when we last had a say on whether or not we wanted to stay in the European Union. And it's incredible. Documents released under the 30-year rule show that there were so many lies told to the British people. And Edward Heath was told that if he signed the European Treaty, uh, the European Communities Act, that we would end up having possibly monetary union, that we would end up having political union, that it would be an EU army and so on and so forth. And they lied to the people about that. They actually said, that's not going to happen. We're not going to lose our sovereignty. Brussels isn't going to make any laws above us. Um, you'll still be able to, uh, we'll still be able to make our own laws. It was total lies. And in those documents under the 30-year rule says, it actually says, and I'm paraphrasing, it actually says, if the people are told the truth about this, they will not stand for it. We will have to do it step by step by step. And we still don't know, actually, what the final picture is. I mean, I, have a, I, have a, I think the, a lot of people have sympathy with what you're saying, mm. but, the, but the, the notion of an EU army, does, it doesn't feel like it's a, if it's on the agenda, mm. it's a fucking long agenda because it's been sort of 40 odd years. Mm where it's been there. I remember William Hague trying to sort of stir up views yeah. of, you know, when he was yeah. Eurosceptic um, about 15 years ago about an EU army. It doesn't really feel like this is a well, major live issue at the moment. How long have we been looking at monetary union now? How long, long is time. it? A very long time. And yet still not all countries are signed up to monetary union. But, you know, there was a report two months, uh, three, three months ago now, uh, called the Five Presidents Report, which talked about completing monetary union. Now, at the moment, of course, Britain has an opt-out. We don't have to join the, union, the, the euro. How long will that last? The five presidents' report suggests that that is what the European Union wants, that uh, the UK is seen as a sort of thorn in its flesh because we're not agreeing to sign up to the euro. Every new country that joins now since 2004 has got to join the euro. And it, it is step by step. Um, it's, 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 it's kind of like these people have an agenda and they have an agenda. They don't care how long it takes and they will sit there and they will work away and bit by bit by bit and they have incredible patience. And it's all, but it is all about the end game. Which is? Full political and monetary union, a United States of Europe, basically the complete summation of the subservience of nation states which are broken down into regions um, with a single president of Europe. If we get to that point, would you stand? <laughs> what a great question. Would you? Well, I suppose if I did, then I could reverse it all again, couldn't I? So I'd have <laughs> to say yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, uh, an absolutely wonderful guest. Uh, thank you very much, all of you, for coming down and for continuing to support the night. These are, um, this last week going for about two and a half years now. I think it's fair to say in those two and a half years, politics has transformed immeasurably. And it's a real pleasure to be able to sit and, and hear your opinions, Suzanne, and to hear from so many different politicians. Next month, we have our first ever SNP guest, Tommy <coughs> Shepherd. He used to be Deputy General Secretary of the Labour Party in Scotland, so he's been on his very own political journey. He's a very nice bloke, um, but obviously his, his views are uh, uh, challenging, to say the least, in this part of the world. I'll come um, and ask a question. Welcome, that's a question indeed. Um, so Tommy Shepard next month, uh, potentially a, a big guest in November that we will announce soon, and uh, I'll keep you updated on Twitter. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, for now, please give a massive thank you to Suzanne Evans. Thank you.
There you go. Another night with you, Kip. Always interesting. Just that exchange. I kind of I felt for Suzanne actually because it must be very difficult in politics. Politicians have to have such a thick exterior um, and appear as if things don't hurt them or don't bother them when, to some extent, they must. And I, I sort of felt I felt for her that she'd clearly wanted to be the candidate for London Mayor, and then things, for whatever reason, will we ever find out truly what has gone on there? Um, she hasn't been selected, but to have uh, the candidate in the room was uh, added another dimension. Every one of these gigs has their own um, temper, has their own personality, and, and that one, as I always say with UKIP, there's always an air of anarchy in the air, and uh, indeed, to an extent, it proved to be the case. The next show is with Tommy Shepherd, um, uh, the first SNP guest I'll have had on. Um, hopefully there'll be more in the future. Um, that show sold out at the St James Theatre, if you're... Um, hearing this before then November sold out as well and then next year uh, loads of guests booking in at the moment for for the whole year Uh, some great ones that I can't wait to tell you about as always thank you for downloading this you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford Um, I'm on tour so you can come and see me if you check out the dates mattford.com slash live um, various cities across the UK and um, obviously doing the gig every month at the St James Theatre the tickets seem to sell out faster than they ever have done so if you book in advance that's the best way to get tickets and I know it's a pain sometimes if you don't know who the guest's going to be um, but the nights are always a good laugh they're always fascinating I, I do always try and get the very best guests around and um, when I think back on some of the nights I've had down there they've, they've just been brilliant so if you do want to come and see it live and it is it's different. It's weird for me having gone through it and then listened back to it because it does I don't know. I get just as much pleasure from both. But there's something about being there. Obviously, you can read them a bit more. You can see their eyes, which makes a huge difference. But um, tickets for that you can get on the St. James Theatre website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell your friends and your family about it and spread the word. And I appreciate every single one of you downloads it. I was doing so well until then. I appreciate every single one of you who downloads it. So thank you individually. Right now, in your ears. Thank you for downloading this. What a pillock. See you soon. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.